You know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a fraction of what they really have? The streaming service actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only about 6,000 of those are available in the good old US of A. That means you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows. Unless, of course, you use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location, protecting your devices from unwanted snooping and allowing you to control where streaming services and other websites think you're located. There are over 100 different locations to choose from, which means you have access to thousands of new shows and movies no matter where you live. This doesn't just work with Netflix, it works with Disney+, Hulu, Max, a UK streamer called BBC iPlayer, and more. I was on a work trip in the UK during the final season of Game of Thrones, and I tried logging into my HBO account to watch a new episode, but the technology wouldn't let me because of geoblocking. And I wish I had this app at that moment, because I now realize how incredibly easy it is to work around that problem. Here's a more recent example. It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is not streaming on Netflix in the US, but I just fired up the episode where Dennis tries to have a peaceful mental health day, and technology keeps interrupting his plans. All I had to do was open ExpressVPN, connect to a UK server, refresh Netflix, and the show just popped up. It's super easy. I've also heard good things about that show called Billions, but I've never been a Showtime subscriber, so I've never seen it. But it's actually available right now on Netflix in South Korea, and with ExpressVPN, it took five seconds to switch over and start checking it out. With ExpressVPN, you get high-quality streaming from devices like your phone, laptop, tablet, and TV, and crucially, it protects your privacy and security to keep your information safe from hackers. Stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you all three extra months free when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash slash film. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slash film to get three extra months completely free. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, how's it going? Uh, busy? Yeah. Um, I feel like every single time on this podcast, like, Jacob, we've been up to, my answer is working? Yeah. Busy? <laughs> Websiting? Yes. Well, uh, the, your your work is, um, you know, people can clearly see the fruits of your labor because Slash Film is just cruising along. There's all, like awesome stuff on the site all the time. Obviously, I'm biased in saying that, but I really hope that our listeners uh, go to the actual website because there's so much stuff on there that we don't talk about um, on this podcast that's there every day. There's like so much interesting stuff. It's, it's really insane. Slash Film was my favorite website for years before I started working there. And I cannot even imagine what the experience would be like as a pure reader of Slash Film right now, just because the amount of stuff that we cover and the, the time period that we're able to, able to cover now has expanded so dramatically. I feel like I, I would love it as a pure reader. So, Yeah, the uh, big thing we've, we've learned recently is, contrary to popular belief, uh, articles about movies made before 1970 are doing extremely well. Which is uh, awesome news. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, I work, I work with teams who, who track this stuff and they say, there's no people who really click on John Wayne and Humphrey Bogart stuff. And I go, what? <laughs> so, so like uh, it's I, I don't know I I know it's very a different site than it was a year and a half ago you know when, um under everything, everything has changed but 
I'm really, I'm really happy. I think we run a good, I think we run a good movie website. Yeah, definitely. And any opportunity we have to write about, you know, Cary Grant or whatever, like how badass is that? Yeah, you know, most uh, movie websites don't really have that uh, that opportunity. So I'm I'm thrilled that uh, that we've been been able to expand in the way that we have. So um, I guess while we're talking about the site, I wanted to uh, to sort of. I guess, announce some site business or some podcast business, rather. Um, I have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'm going to be gone starting uh, this Friday for five weeks. My wife and I are going to Italy, and I'm not bringing my microphone with me. Um, as you can imagine, that would probably be <laughs> a bit of a pain to uh, to travel with. So the podcast is going to be a little spotty over the month of September, especially because there's a lot of stuff going on. There's D23, there's Halloween Horror Nights, which I know Peter is going to Orlando for. Um, I think there's at least one or two other little stretches where Peter is going to be uh, away and, and covering other things. So I just wanted to give listeners a heads up that, um, you know, the podcast may go down to three days a week or, or I don't know what, but Peter plans on uh, covering She-Hulk. I know Andor is going to launch. Uh, the premiere of Andor is going to launch before I get back. So I think he and Brad and maybe Brian Young are going to be talking about that. So there's definitely still going to be stuff on this feed. Um, I just wanted p- to people to know that um, the sort of prolific daily nature of this podcast may slow down a little bit. Um, I guess if some, you know, huge Disney buys another movie studio type news breaks, then maybe Ryan will be able to jump on and record like a, an emergency podcast or something. Um, but yes, hopefully people will, uh, will stick with us until I get back on, uh, I should be back on Monday, October 3rd. So, um, yeah, hopefully everybody enjoys their uh, end of summer, uh, beginning of fall period. And I just wanted to, to sort of throw that out there to give people, um, you know, an idea of what to expect. So, uh, okay, let's get into it, Jacob. What have you been reading recently? Uh, speaking of Cary Grant, <laughs> um, I started reading, I, I finished actually, Scott Iman's Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. A It was published, I don't know, last year or year before. It's, it's the most recent Cary Grant biography. And Scott Iman is a, is a veteran Hollywood biographer who's written a lot of books about classic Hollywood. And I found this book extremely gripping and extremely entertaining. And I found its uh, insight into Cary Grant as a performer and a human being. Uh, because for those of you who don't know, he was born Archibald Leach uh, in 1904. And essentially crafted the character of Cary Grant, this suave, debonair, uh, funny, uh, charming movie star. And the two versions of him never quite gelled uh, for his entire life. Full of all kinds of classic movies and all kinds of behind-the-scenes heartbreaks. And um, just a very interesting man. Maybe not as you, you, you'll find more dramatic. I think movie star biographies out there because Cary Grant really kind of stuck to his lane in terms of he was a Hollywood star. His business was in Lo- was in Los Angeles, and his problems were all personal. But if you are interested in in you know what it was like to be the biggest movie star in the world between you know 1940 and 1960. Um, what would have meant to be, you know, the Tom Cruise of that era. And then the insight here really is remarkable and extremely entertaining. I highly recommend uh, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. I'm curious, Jacob. I know that um, I've talked about the podcast, The Secret History of Hollywood before, and I think I got you uh, to to listen to that show. And they're doing, they're right in the middle of a big series about Cary Grant right now. There's like a, I think they've released three parts and obviously it's like a multi-hour thing because that's sort of like the MO of that show. Um, and it's very detailed and it, it sort of, um, you know, takes uh, sources from biographies and all sorts of different things and sort of lays out this detailed trajectory of, of um, its subject's life. And I'm curious if you've uh, caught up with the, the current series and how you think the this series of the podcast uh, compares to this biography. I am listening to that podcast series. I'm enjoying it. 
but I do think that podcast host, he's, he has a far more sentimental view of Grant. I think uh, Iman is a, a journalist first, and he is very upfront about certain things. Right? I, I guess the, the biggest difference I noticed was that uh, since since that Secrecy Hollywood podcast is trying to create a radio show, essentially an, 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 a biopic in, in audio form, mm-hmm. they're dramatizing certain things like uh, Cary Grant's relationship with his mother uh, in the podcast is presented as being one that's almost sweet uh, in one word, like there's a lot of caring on both sides. Whereas uh, Scott Iman, the journalist, uh, makes it pretty clear that there was a lot more tension there. And I think that podcast cares to get into. Interesting. Uh, okay. So I'm not saying I, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to one or, or not read one or not enjoy one, but I'm just saying like it's very interesting to see that um, uh, the very different takes in the same material and how people are choosing to interpret these relationships. Yeah, that's great. That's actually what I was hoping that you were going to say because I'm I'm curious to uh, like if it, if it covered the exact same ground and did it in a very similar way, then I would think that there was there would be no reason to read this biography. But now I'm I'm glad to know that there is because I definitely want to like dive in and learn as much about Grant as possible because he's uh, quickly becoming one of my favorite on screen performers. He's awesome. So, um, what else have you been reading? Yeah, the moment I finished Carrie Grant Blue Skies, I, I started reading uh, John Edmonds' uh, other recent biography, uh, John Wayne: The Life and Legend, and this is a I'm only like maybe 75 pages into it, but it's another really gripping book. I'm, I know uh, John Wayne is incredibly controversial, especially these days, because he was a lifelong conservative. He became a figurehead for right wing America, uh, but this book uh, so far has confronted that. It tries to explain, you know, why did he become that person? What did it mean when the symbol of America is a cowboy with these beliefs in real life? And it's doing its best to really try to humanize him. I, I feel like there tends to be, you know, people drawing a line on John Wayne between. Oh, he's a Hollywood legend, and he's a cowboy. He's America. And the other half will say, "Oh no, he's actually a racist, coward, monster." And I think that Scott Iman's book is kind of saying, "What if both? You know, what if what if um, we can actually look at a very complicated man in, in, in ways that you know are complicated?" Uh, and uh, so far, I've I found it really interesting. Like the moment it really hooked me was um, learning. Like I guess the um, one thing I, I commonly see is when people try to make fun of John Wayne, they always like his name wasn't even John Wayne; his name was Marion, and people like poking fun of "ha ha tough guy" with name Marion. <laughs> but the book points out that John Wayne, as a kid, was relentlessly bullied, picked on, and beat up for his name was for his name was Marion, and had to like rebuild himself into a tough guy to survive. <laughs> and um, so it's one of those cases where it's like I'm like, oh, th- th- this is you, you. People think they're you know uh, f- finding unique, fresh ways to make fun of John Wayne when in fact they're just dredging up the oldest thing from his childhood trauma, which I thought was a very interesting way to recontextualize how people talk about the legacy of John Wayne. I don't know if I'm making sense here or not. Yeah, no, no, that makes it, that makes total sense. Yeah. Um, okay, man, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, uh, Scott Iman. I've never read any of his stuff, but it sounds like he's, uh, he's two for two so far. I mean, you're not, I, you're not I went out and bought all the, practically all his books. I went out wow. and found them all. He's, he has a, he has a book about, um, about, uh, the, the, about the story of MGM, the story of 20th Century Fox. He has a book about Cecil B. DeMille. He has a book about the um, origin of the talkies in the late 20s. Uh, Sweet. Uh, he, oh, he has a biography of a John Ford, which I also will probably read after John Wayne. Yeah, man, that sounds awesome. Okay, cool. Uh, all right, so let's get into what we've been watching. I uh, had a chance to watch John Mayer Rise for the River, which was a, uh, a live-streamed concert that uh, musician, guitarist, singer-songwriter John Mayer put on to raise money for the uh, Yellowstone area uh, of Montana, which is where he's been living for over a decade. And they experienced some pretty um, devastating flooding in earlier this summer, I think in June. And uh, it was just a way for him to basically say like, hey, if you pay $20 or whatever it was, 
um, you can live stream this. You can watch this concert that I'm doing from all over the world. And it was just a solo acoustic show. And he played the entirety of his 2012 album, Born and Raised, for the first time, um, which was cool because I, I at the time, uh, I'm a big John Mayer fan. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before. But at the time, at 20, you know, in 2012, when that album first came out, I kind of skipped it or, or didn't really pay much attention to it because it was slower, sort of like more folk-inspired uh, um, tracks. And I was more in that headspace of like really wanting more from John Mayer as a guitarist, like this sort of shredding, bris- like blistering, uh, you know, blues licks and all, all the, the stuff that he had done with like the John Mayer trio, for example. And so I was, um, I guess, disappointed in Born and Raised when it came out. But now my tastes have evolved a little bit. And I'm, I went back not too long ago and uh, really started digging into that album. And um and found a lot to like there. So it was a cool thing to for him to play this album all the way through in its entirety for the first time, coinciding with my sort of like, uh, I guess, reappreciation or whatever you want to call it of, uh, of that album. It was just cool. So um, I'm not sure if uh, you can still access this. You may be able to like still donate and, and watch the live stream of it. I think they said that the, um, the video of, of the performance is going to disappear on August 28th which is a few days from now as we're recording this. So maybe there's still time if you're a big John Mayer fan and didn't know about this to um, to go and, and check that out. So maybe just Google John Mayer Rise for the River. Uh, I'll also link to an article in the show notes where he announced that they're making uh, a movie adaptation of, of one of his songs. Like one of the songs is going to inspire, be the source material for a movie. So I wrote that up um, and I will link to that and you can read it. Uh, Jacob, I also watched Light and Magic. Have you seen this show? I am, first of all, I assume you did not watch John Mayer Rise of the River. You're not a secret John Mayer fan, are you? I have nothing against John Mayer, uh, I, but I would be lying if I told you I could name a single John Mayer song. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we weren't like, you know, operating our lives in tandem and somehow both big fans of this and have never once talked about it. So, uh, okay, yeah, I, I assumed as much. But uh, Light and Magic, that seems like something you would have dipped in on. Uh, I, I, I'll be honest, I have not watched it yet. I, I'm a very, very bad film fan. It's been on my to-do list for a few weeks now, and I, I know I need to. <sighs> Jacob, it is so great. It is, you know, I'm kind of loath to... Um, really to engage with a lot of Disney stuff these days, because some of it just feels a little gross to me. Like they're the dominant force in, in sort of the pop culture sphere that we uh, inhabit and cover a lot. And um, you know, some of it just feels like some of the stuff that they release just feels a little too back patty to me and, and kind of um, yeah, kind of gross. (laughs) But this is one of the rare examples of a show that is like, you know, all about Disney, all about Lucasfilm, um, it's actually not really about Disney at all. It's all about Lucasfilm and, but you know, the impact that that, uh, production company and, and, uh, infrastructure that, that whole system has had on the Hollywood landscape. Um, and even though it's so clearly a piece that is like meant to be this glowing, uh, portrait of what this company has done, um, it is so awesome to watch because the the archival footage that they have here is incredible. And uh, Lawrence Kasdan directs this thing. And so it's clear that it's coming from a person who knows what they're doing, who was very much like an active part behind the scenes in participating in that entire era of when Lucasfilm from the late 70s and through the, the 80s sort of like single-handedly as a company changed what Hollywood could do and what the scope of a blockbuster would look like. And um, the interviews are unreal. Like, you know, Jacob, I I assume that growing up, you 
you know, read um, profiles or uh, saw magazines or encountered the names of people like Dennis Murin and Phil Tippett and uh, John Dykstra and these sort of like behind the scenes wizards who worked at ILM. And, and this documentary gives more access than anything I've ever seen into not only current interviews with them reflecting on their time at the company and, and sort of like step-by-step uh, step how they built this stuff and, and what they think it means and their thoughts about their legacy and all of that kind of stuff, but also this incredible footage of them in the moment actually doing the thing that they uh, sort of became legends for. It's really like a, a remarkable uh, thing. So it's a six-episode docuseries, and the first, I think, two or three episodes really drill down on the first Star Wars and how um, sort of miraculous it was that these guys were able to essentially come up with this stuff whole cloth, these techniques and, and make their dates and, you know, barely get this done by the time that the, the movie came out. And then it sort of uh, expands into how uh, light and magic and, and uh, how industrial light and magic, the company um, evolved over time. And, you know, there's the, the uh, introduction of Pixar and like the introduction of Photoshop. And it like, uh, it really synthesizes in one place how incredibly influential George Lucas as a singular human was like the way that uh, I, the reason that I'm talking to you now over Zencaster can be traced back to George Lucas. Like the idea that we're dealing with digital audio in this way uh, and we're able to edit it and, and turn it into a podcast. I think George Lucas is like a totemic figure in, <laughs> in the history of this medium, even though I don't think he's ever recorded a podcast, but uh, yeah, it's just incredible to watch. So um, I, I know that you would love watching this Jacob and, and it's really just like a fascinating thing to see the entire industry change and and to watch like the the tactile nature of these people working in a warehouse and building stuff with their hands go from that to when Jurassic Park happens and the switch over to CG and digital and everything to, to that happening essentially overnight um, and what that meant for the company and what that meant for the people who were working at the company who were working in those labs and doing the stuff with their hands and you know, how, how they had to um, sort of grapple with what their place in Hollywood was going to be now that the, the system has shifted so dramatically. It's just uh, incredibly fascinating to watch. So yeah, I'm start this tonight. Yeah, you really should. It, I mean, I know that you'll love it. This is very much like your shit. So it's called uh, Light and Magic and streaming on Disney Plus right now. Um, the only other thing that I've been watching that I wanted to mention is uh, last time HT and I were talking, I mentioned uh, watching as many William Powell movies as I can find. He's the, the one of the lead actors in the thin man. He's been in a ton of stuff. Uh, I watched a movie uh, from Turner classic movie or on Turner classic classic movies called the ex Mrs. Bradford from 1936. Uh, William Powell co-stars with Gene Arthur in this one. Very, very fun movie. They play a uh, soon to be divorced couple that like a, the divorce is in the works, even though it hasn't technically gone through yet. And the um, the wife played by Jean Arthur, Arthur is uh, obsessed with murder mysteries and like to the point where that was the wedge that that uh, basically drove the couple apart. And she ends up looping Powell's character into uh, helping her solve this murder that happens at a, a racetrack. And um, there's all sorts of like, twisty uh you know revelations about how the the killer um pulled off this uh dastardly crime and and what sort of um you know fun and interesting ways all of this happens and it ends with literally them gathering all of the suspects in a room like a drawing room and doing a big speech about <laughs> about how they figure out who the killer is um it's really just a 
like, you know, if you love Murder on the Orient Express and those sort of like Agatha Christie style, like closed room, uh, drawing room mystery kind of things, this is a really great movie to watch. So it's called uh, The Ex Mrs. Bradford. Let me track that one down. Yeah, so uh, it sounds like a very much a Ben movie. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I've watched a lot of stuff that have a lot of shows I've talked about recently, or at least not recent, last time I was on the show. So I'll stick to only a handful of things to keep it from being repetitive. But uh, I watched Knives Out last night, the Ryan Johnson film from 2019. Uh, I think it was on my top 10 of the year when I first saw it. And I loved it. But I think in the past three years, I've probably watched Knives Out about 20 times. I have it on a, I have it on disc, but like it was streaming, uh, I think, on Amazon for a little while. So like mm-hmm. I would just pop it on Amazon. Uh, the disc would just like live next to my player. Um, and last night, uh, I felt the urge to watch it because the sequel, Glass Onion, reveals some first-look images. And I realized, oh, my disc is in a box because I'm in the middle of a move. It's no longer streaming. So I went and rented it. I rented the movie I own because I wanted to watch <laughs> Knives Out. And um, I'm sitting here watching it, realizing I, I've seen this movie so many times. I know every beat of it. I know every moment. But I f- still find myself compelled to watch it and rewatch and rewatch it. And this is where I had a question that I can ask you, Ben. At what point does a recent movie transfer from a movie you like into an all-time favorite? Because saying that Knives Out is one of my favorite movies of all time sounds a little ridiculous because it's only a three-year-old movie. But I'm pretty sure it's crossed that line. I'm pretty sure if I I wrote my top 15 movies of all time, there's a strong chance Knives Out could have a shot at one of those spots. And I'm wondering, when am I allowed to say this kind of stuff? Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, I... Well, a recent example of this is I remember uh, I, I'm a, I've been a longtime listener of the Slash Filmcast, which is now called the Filmcast, even you know well before I, I joined Slash Film. And this just happened with those guys where um, David Chen specifically said that Everything Everywhere All at Once is one of his favorite movies of all time. And he they, they said that in their review, like days after they saw the movie for the first time. And I know that you, that's the only movie I think that you've given a 10 out of 10 review to in your time reviewing stuff for SlashFilm.com, which is like yeah, so the, the one, one and only um, 10 out of 10 I've ever given, which means that at some point in three years, that movie may also have to enter conversation as well because yeah. I feel like it, it's. I walked out of that movie blown away. And I've, like I said, I've never given ten out of ten before it. So, so like yeah. So, is three years the limit for us to declare a new movie like an all time movie? Think, I think you can do it immediately. Sometimes you just know. Like I think I think Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, you know, after my second viewing of that movie, I, I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm pure, I'm full on in love with this in a way where it, it just lives in my soul and will forever. And, you know, the movie was still like in its theatrical run at that moment. So like three years, that's, that's way too long. It's, I don't even think it's been three years since that movie been, has been released. And I've, you know, there's not been a day that goes by where I don't think about a moment from it. It's just like, you know, in my being. So uh, I, I don't know if there is a limit, Jacob. That's a really interesting thing, though. I'd love our listeners to, to write in and let us know. Uh, Peter at SlashFilm.com if you have any thoughts about that. But um, what would be the downside, Jacob, of, of announcing such a thing? Like thinking that it's too early and then maybe like, you know, five years down the line being like, ah, I, I'm not quite as head over heels for this as I once thought. You know, it's a problem with being an online person or a person who has even a minor following on, on, on social media, which is you say something like, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. People say, oh, you guys, because it's made 2019, don't you like any old movies? And the answer is yes, I like lots of old movies. But <laughs> Knives Out is spectacular. And I think that it is such a rich, funny, specific, crowd-pleasing work of art. And I and it, I don't, I don't remember what I, what I made my number one film in 2019. I don't remember what, what it actually was, but I think Knives Out would top. In fact, 
I'm gonna look this up right now in real time, Ben. Can you bear with me here? <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Uh, I was man, I was just thinking about knives out this morning. Well, because those images came out, like you said yesterday. And I saw that movie once in theaters and have been wanting to rewatch it ever since, but I've just been getting waylaid by other things. And I just resolved earlier this morning to watch this movie uh maybe like this October because it's such a perfect fall movie the colors and the the uh, you know crunchy leaves and everything so I have like uh you know October 15th <laughs> I haven't actually done this but I'm going to circle it on my calendar and just make that like knives out day 2022 well, looking at my top 15 from 2019 in my defense the movies that ranked above it are bangers 2019 was a great year uh I I had knives out at number seven on my top 15 um, and I actually have above it. Um, oh, sorry. This is, oh, I'm looking at the wrong list. I'm looking at slash films overall. Ah, top okay. 15. I think, oh, here's my personal one. There we go. This is still a banger every year. Okay. I had knives out number three. There we uh, go. Ranked above it. I had two movies. I, I do think are masterpieces as well, but I think I put knives out above them now. And that is uh, little women, which I, I love. I love Greta Gerwig's little women. Fucking great movie. Yeah. Uh, but there's parasite, you know, the film that was my number one. Mm-hmm. And, I guess my whole thing is, I think Parasite's great. I've seen Parasite twice in the past three years, and I've seen Knives Out twenty times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's something to be said about rewatchability and sort of how that, um, yeah, how that like affects and changes your your uh, your relationship with something over time. That that definitely makes more sense. I mean, like Parasite is like one of those movies that um, is perfectly uh, put together and like is so impressive when you watch it. But um, there's something about like the familiarity and sort of like a uh, cozy way that you can like settle into something like knives out that um, it's just a, a whole totally different experience than something like parasite. Well, speaking of movies, but settling in, I also rewatched once upon a time in Hollywood, the Quentin Tarantino film from uh, that same year. I also uh, ranked on my personal list. I think this is a really, I, I, I struggle to see underrated because it was a big box. Obviously that critical hit at one Oscars, you know, but it's, Whenever time a new Tarantino movie opens, the discourse becomes unbearable. I think people focus on all the wrong things, and the noise outweighs the quality of the movie. In this case, I think this movie is such a hangout film. It's three hours spent in the company of these odd characters in a time and place that you know clearly Quentin Tarantino and everybody who made this. I dream about and dreams about this, but about a place they, they can't go, they can't go back to. It's impossible to return to Los Angeles in 1969. Uh, but this has become a movie that, like Knives Out, I like to have on, and I like to, I like to have it on while I do other things. Like if I am, like I was organizing cards in the card sleeves board game activities this night. Mm-hmm. I wanted something that was comforting, something where I, I felt like I was hanging out with friends, and uh, those characters are obsessive neurotic sometimes violent weirdos but they're my friends and i i really enjoyed hanging out with them while i organized cards so yeah i think one time in hollywood i think is um kind of creeping up the tarantino ranks for me i i think that it's him at his sweetest and his most humane and at his most romantic and i think that movie really holds up and i think that years removed from the noise it's spectacular oh man i'm so glad that you're uh I mean, it's not like you ever disliked this movie. As you mentioned, it was initially on your your list. But I'm glad that um, that you're growing more fonder of it over time because it, this is one of the, uh, like one of the rare examples of a movie where you know I'll, I'll watch um, uh, like Doctor No, for example, right? And and the thing that I always point to in that movie is like uh, Sean Connery like walks across a room to turn a light switch off, and then like the camera lingers on him as he does the entire thing, and like modern editing would tell you um 
to either cut that scene out altogether, like who cares, or make it happen faster. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of the rare examples of a modern movie that uh, has its characters just driving from place to place. And, and that is part of the, of the vibe, you know, like being able to just sit in the car with them, you know, on paper, you don't necessarily quote unquote need that to further the story, but that sort of contributes to that hangout vibe that you're talking about. You're, you're actually in the car with these people as they're just cruising across town. And it, it, yeah, it shows the, how far Brad Pitt's character is from the epicenter of Hollywood. So it has like a narrative function at some points or how far Spawn Ranch is. But there are a lot of times when they're just driving around like within the city of Hollywood and like you don't technically need that stuff, but they're just cruising and listening to the radio and whatever. And it's just like, yeah, it's a really great example of um, actually taking the time to uh, do things that other movies may, may cut out, but it sort of helps give the movie its personality, I think. I, I saw a headline, uh, it was clearly a headline written to get people to get, get angry at it, um, but I understood what they were saying. I can't remember who, where it was, but it was, it was a discussing subject of Better Call Saul, which just ended, by the way. I, I probably push, push it on my, on my list of things to talk about because Better Call Saul finale was spectacular. Um, <laughs> but it, it said that um, one thing that most modern streaming TV does that... Uh, or doesn't do that Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad did, uh, did was remember to be boring. And I know when they said boring, I kind of cringed, but I, I knew what they were saying, which is Quentin Tarantino's What's Happened to Hollywood, those driving scenes of the scenes of, of long takes of people just moving from place to place, reminded me of how Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad respected the audience enough to like say, hey, spend five minutes and not know what's going on. Or spend 10 minutes with a character you don't know who they are and, and, and trust that you will know why we're spending time with them in a few minutes mm-hmm. and uh, shows that n- never hold your hand and just trust that you are along for the ride and are in on the vibe. And I wouldn't call it boring, even though I understand what the headline was trying to communicate there. But I do think that more TV and more movies can benefit from trusting the audience to be patient with material. And I, and I think that that's very evident here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, so a couple other things you've been watching, Jacob. Uh, <laughs> you've been a, a BattleBots fan for as long as I've known you. There's a new season out? Yes, this is actually kind of confusing. The new season of BattleBots is on Discovery+, Plus, and it's, they're calling it Season 7, even though it's technically not Season 7. This, this, is, this is making me look crazy. Because when they were filming the Grand Championship finale, the, the final Top 16 bracket of, of Season 6, they ran a simultaneous tournament of other robots uh, uh, who were going to battle it out for a separate uh, competition. And when they previously did this for previous seasons, they ran it as a spinoff show in its own separate area. But here they've just they've just called it season seven and have dropped it in there. So they, so even though it's literally happening simultaneously as a top sixteen bracket, which means that some of the major robots in top sixteen aren't in this tournament because they're too busy fighting for the actual main prize. Uh, so it's just unusual. But but uh, it's <laughs> the funny thing that even though these are a lot of you know. To be generous, you know, B plus tier robots, while the while the A level robots are off, you know, competing for the main uh, main prize. This has been some of the most exciting battle bots I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> so like huge hits, big upsets, incredibly entertaining. Uh, like for those who don't, who don't know battle bots, it's literally what if gladiators, but instead of human beings dying for entertainment, uh, really smart engineers built robots in the garages and. With weapons, and they had them uh, drive at each other and smash other pieces. Uh, and all I'll say is that the season premiere of uh, this current season, or if you if you want to call it that, 
is one of the most entertaining battle bot stretches I've ever seen. Uh, I, it, like a good sports story, it pays off a long running thread of a certain robot who's never gotten his due getting his due. Uh, a compete with like incredible plays, just like man, my 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 wife who used to roll her eyes at battle bots uh, is now is super into it, and we just, <laughs> just watch it and we cheer. I know people online. I'll follow the, I'll follow the battle bots fan forums. People like fast forward through the fluff between fights, where like you know the talking heads are the pop up and discuss strategy and discuss game plan and. When the ringside notch comes out and announces which robots are coming out to fight, some people fast forward through that stuff because it's streaming. I'm like, no, this is my sports. This is my baseball. You, you, you wouldn't fast forward through the boring parts of baseball. I'm not going to fast forward through the boring parts of robot combat. Uh, so I, I, it's every Thursday night. It's an event. My wife and I settle in and we make a big, big deal out of BattleBots. And this season has been rewarding us in a major way. So if you are at all interested in BattleBots on Discovery Plus, um, I think that some of the long simmering events uh, in this new season pay off really well if you've been following the show uh but if you want a good example of like oh wow this is really entertaining and really features some really good robots being smashed uh season seven episode one is a really really good example of that Uh, jacob i hope for your sake that you know one day maybe in a year maybe two years you act two years from now maybe you actually like have some free time on your hands and you can start the BattleBots podcast that you clearly (laughs) that that lives (laughs) in your heart you know rent free it's just like uh your love for this thing is so pure and i i know that there are other people out there who probably feel the same way and i feel like you would be a really great BattleBots podcast co-host very very too busy for it but i I have once they moved production to las vegas it used used to be in los angeles but the past two years they've moved it to las vegas and i've really thought do i want to take a week off and go watch live (laughs) battle bots i haven't pulled the trigger yet but it's been in my brain so we'll we'll see amazing all right well speaking of things that have been in your brain i know that the world of westeros uh, has been in your brain for a long time and uh, house of the dragon came out i have not watched this because i'm leaving on friday and i didn't want to watch the first episode and then you know wait whatever, five or six weeks to catch up because I don't think I'll have access to HBO Max internationally. But uh, I'm sure you've been, if not eagerly anticipating this, then then certainly like your curiosity must have been piqued, Jacob. So what, what did you think about the first episode of House of the Dragon? Uh, first of all, I want to say that uh, it, in the film Twitter bubble, the entire word has been, you know, in the past six months, Ugh, no one's going to watch a Game of Thrones spinoff. That finale was so bad. Uh, no one's interested. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares. I When I regathered with my... Game of Thrones group who used to watch Game of Thrones together for 10 years or close to 10 years. Uh, we all felt an excuse to hang out again, which is a, a beautiful, amazing thing. Um, I'd say maybe a handful of us were, were tuned in to the discourse. Everybody else was like, oh yeah, more Game of Thrones. Great. So I, I feel like the the bubble that we've been existing in where people are acting like it's controversial Game of Thrones is back or like people, the, the discussion, the discourse over do people care anymore? The answer is yeah, they, they really, really care because that show was huge and most people did not like tear their clothes and scream in agony or the finale. Most of them shrugged it off and said, okay, that maybe wasn't what I wanted, but it's over now. I still loved it. I still still (laughs) love the show overall. This seems like a forecast for um, the reaction that we're going to have to uh, avatar the way of water later this year. Yep. I I think so entirely. Uh, But so I will say that um, I really like the first episode of house of the dragon. It has the production values, the scope, the special effects of the latest season game of Thrones, but there are, I think, to my count, four small council scenes, Ben. Four scenes where the wow. king and his council sit around and talk taxes and the city watch and politics and how to deal with the troublesome member of the royal family. And Ben, that's how I, that's why I fell in love with Game of Thrones, so small yeah. council meetings. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that like right out of the gate... 
they they very easily could have just done you know full blown action you know battle of the bastards style to especially to like hook people but that's a bold step kind of for the, i mean it, it's a little ridiculous to say anything is bold when it's like you know uh, essentially like riding the coattails of one of their most popular uh, shows and it's a, a prequel set in the same world and whatever but like legitimately i think uh, from a storytelling perspective that sounds like a bold swing that they took where like it's not quite as full bore action as it could have been yeah i mean there's a, a big set piece set at a uh, at a tournament uh, the, the king throws a tournament in honor of his um soon to be born child uh and there's a lot of like action where people are you know jousting each other and and and, and it escalates in a few cases where people fall off their horses and draw swords and there's some action happening but it's very much um it's less about the action, more about which knights approach which member of the royal family and ask for their favor. Hmm. You know, it's the kind of thing where the show is less interested in who's beating who up, in which knight is asking who for which favor, and why it's an insult or why it's a compliment, and how those <laughs> dynamics are paying off both in tournament and next to it. So, I I know the showrunners, um, uh, Miguel Sapochik and Ryan Condal, have um, they have not like necessarily said bad things for the later season of Game of Thrones, but they sort of heavily implied that, especially Ryan Condal, who was um, not involved in the original show, Miguel uh, Sapochik was, uh, Ryan Condal, uh, to be very clear, he was a Game of Thrones fan. He was, he, and he watched the show and fell in love with it. And I think that it's very clear to me from this early episode that he loved the same things I think fans loved, which was politicking, backroom scheming, characters who are shades of gray, who you kind of see what they want, but they go about the wrong way. Um, I'm one episode in. I know I've talked to some colleagues who've seen the first six, and they say they say it actually gets better. Uh, and they said, but by episode six, they were really sold on the rest of the season. Um, so that's you know that's, that's secondhand information. Do with it what you will. Uh, but I, based on the first episode, it feels like a show that feels very much in line with the first four seasons of Game of Thrones, when the show was you know far had a much smaller scope in terms of you know its storytelling, which I think mm-hmm. benefited it. So, and knowing that this is a show that's about you know House Targaryen and about you know, conflicts in their immediate vicinity uh, makes me feel very good about this being a show that keeps its uh, its scope manageable. Even though it's going to have giant dragons and, you know, war is on the horizon, we will get battle scenes. This is very much a, a show that out of the gate says, um, we hope you like small council meetings. And you know what? Yes, 100%. Yes, I do. <laughs> All right. Westeros is back, baby. I'm so glad that uh, I know how much this this fictional world means to you, Jacob. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're able to uh, to jump back in, that you're actually digging it after one episode. So. Yeah, I, 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 as expected, I think the discourse has been a, bit, a little bit unbearable. I think that people are talking about an extreme, a moment of extreme violence in the, in, in the, in the pilot mm-hmm. um, that is, yes, incredibly uncomfortable. And yes, it is very hard to watch. And uh, you have a right to not enjoy the imagery, but also I feel like the discourse has been they should never have scenes of violence like this, as opposed to discussing you know what it means for this world, and these characters. And I kind of hope that I was hoping that three years off would mean people would maybe approach this stuff with a bit more um, nuance, and no one has. So I'm, <laughs> I'm so we'll see how things go in the weeks ahead when people talk about this show. <laughs> All right. Well, so, some things never change, I guess. Um, all right. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about a lot of the stuff that we mentioned on today's podcast at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. Slashfilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. 
Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.